Hello and welcome to These Are the Days of Our Podcast. I'm Lisa. And I'm Jen. And today we're celebrating museums, which is celebrated on May the 18th. Tell me about museums. Do you have a favorite museum? Do you love or hate museums? I've I obviously love them yeah. as like the number one plaque reader. You have you see a plaque, you have it's to read learning. it. It's a yes, role of in life. Yeah, it's got to learn. I love museums. I don't know what to say about museums because I just think they're the greatest, and I've been to so many of them. I did look up like the top museums in the world. And I've been to every single one of them, so, like, it just proves my love for museums. I also wanted to add that we have gone to many museum-based events together, showing our deep and mm-hmm. enduring love for museums and events coming together in happy harmony. And so I just wanted to, like, briefly touch on a few of the coolest ones, because, guys... We're so cool and so good at learning things and doing stuff. Most recently, we went and did yoga under a blue whale skeleton at the Natural History Museum here in London, which was amazing. It was really cool. Mm -hmm. That one was actually really cool. We also were, I would say, quite trendy on the nights at the museum because I think we were some of the early adopters mm-hmm. of this. And and it was like one of those like very cool and hip events where the museum was open late and there was street food vendors and DJs and, and you know, bars. dinosaur bones. It was just the best. <laughs> Yeah, we've done some really cool things in museums, and we've been to a lot of museums. What would you say is your favorite museum? Oh, so you are going to hate my answer to this, because... I think I can (laughs) guess what it is, and I think it's so dumb. Of, like, all the museums in the world, the Louvre, the National Gallery in London, the Met, you're going to pick the the ABBA Museum. I am going to pick the ABBA Museum, (laughs) because... It is the funnest museum I've ever been to. I've been a couple of times because I love it so much. The ABBA Museum is in Stockholm and it is so fun and so interactive. Did you know that you can get a music video of yourself dancing with ABBA holograms or I don't know that you needed this, but you can get it at the ABBA Museum, an audition tape of you belting out your favorite ABBA songs to audition to be the fifth member of ABBA. It's honestly so fun. I had the greatest time. I would go back in a heartbeat. And I know that is less cool and less cultured and sophisticated. What's your favorite museum? Um, I actually don't know. (laughs) But... I was I was trying to think of from my year of traveling, which I guess was like three years ago. We went to the Coco Museum in La Paz in Bolivia, and we ha- got to try out real Coca Cola in the cafe. So like made like that still had the cocaine extract in it, and it was amazing. Oh my god, <laughs> we were so tired it just like wakes you up. 
good old housewives with their like heroin drug addict lives in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. Yeah, so really, that was a really cool museum. I mean, I'd have to say, obviously, the type of museums, I'd obviously pick art galleries. And then therefore, I'd probably pick the Barnes Collection in Philadelphia. And actually, one of the most unique museums I've ever been to was also in Philadelphia and it's Eastern State Penitentiary and it's a the very first penitentiary in the United States and it's the history of prisons and it's so you would uh-huh. love it because it stopped being used in the 80s and so half of the prison has like this tree growth and that just like infiltrates the cells and the walls so you're just like walking through the hallway and you look into a cell and there's just like a tree growing in it it's absolutely beautiful and then very informative has a lot of information about prisons and jailing especially in the united states and it's really really cool so i'd say those three i like this is a question you may not want to answer but what's the worst museum you've been to i don't know if i've been to a bad museum (laughs) you think that's i mean sometimes you go to them and they're just like so boring and you're like Okay, this is gonna. This is a little scandalous, but like you go to the Uffizi in Florence, which is you know the home of Renaissance art, and you're like, oh, how beautiful! Another picture of Madonna and chubby Jesus, very original <laughs> Renaissance artist. And then so you're like, yeah, you see the cool important pieces, and then you're like, oh, another fresco of Jesus, shocking, you know, just you yeah. know. So avant-garde for your time, Renaissance artist. I think that I would absolutely say that there are sections of some Mm -hmm. museums that are really boring and that I hardly ever go into. But then I also think when you go to a museum, you hit the wall in terms of ability to absorb information and be excited about things. And so you're just like, oh, great. Another really important thing that has shaped our entire concept of being human awesome whoa (laughs) everything's so important and my brain hurts yeah pretty much yeah pretty much yeah i feel like that's true for like anything you go to the vna in london or the british museum or anything it's all like oh okay yeah and now that we live in london we have the ability to go to these museums really frequently so i've started just picking one or two wings to visit and then I can really enjoy them and then I don't get completely overwhelmed Mm -hmm. and I think that's such a luxurious way of enjoying a museum and the last time I was in the British Museum British Museum I spent most of my time in the Japan section Mm -hmm. and there's all of these little ceramic um figurines that were tiny little figurines that were like buttons and pins and there's some very lewd sculptures that Japanese men used to have like pinned to their garments and in their hair amazing and it's like these tiny little things and if I had tried to go and see all of the antiquities included in the museum I never would have noticed and read about this very interesting and bizarre blip in Japanese male fashion so that was pretty cool yeah that is pretty cool (laughs) should we talk about what 
like the history of museums why do museums exist and why do they matter why do we collect things and then visit them um yeah let's talk about why they matter well i think i mean obviously i feel like i'm arguing for something that i would be surprised people argue against but i mean i i think it's very obvious that they teach us they inspire us they make us smarter they um preserve everything from history for later generations they are a great place for research so they hire people to study these things and so we can learn from the past i mean but i guess the there is a dark side for the for museums like we know there's everything everything in history is through a gaze historically mm-hmm. through a predominantly white and male lens curators obviously have their own choices and how they display things or what they display in their collections like the british museum has the most artifacts in the entire world of any museum and it only displays like a quarter of what they own at any given time so you're like well so who's picking what and where and then but even before that curation process, there's the really dark mm-hmm. history of the legacies of colonialism, of war, of exploitation, of stealing cultural artifacts. And then that continues today. And it becomes this really unanswerable question, I think, about who should have the stuff? Who should have yeah. what stuff? And and who sh- when should we have to give it back? And when yeah. should we have... You know, that sort of question. I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. Well, no, and that's that's what I was going to say, because the British Museum is probably the most famous example. So they have what they call the Lord Elgin marbles, which are the pieces of the frieze that are from the Parthenon in in Athens, Greece. And so he discovered them in the 1800s and took them back to the UK when Greece didn't care about them. And now Greece for years has wanted them back and they even if you go into the British Museum so if you walk okay you walk in the front doors you turn left there's the Rosetta Stone right there no big deal most one of those biggest (laughs) most important things you'll ever see in your life and you continue past the Rosetta Stone and go straight to the end and you enter this room and it's absolutely stunning it has all these skylights so it's really bright and you can see all the Lord Elgin marbles just around and they've they're displayed just like they were displayed on the um, Parthenon and and they have a pamphlet in the center that says they're never giving them back <laughs> and they won't give them back because they argue I was like well the British Museum is free you can just come and see see them they're now part of British history and anyone can come see them and you're like well if you go to the Parthenon in Athens something is very much missing very obviously missing and for people that live in Greece, they may not be able to just walk to the British Museum on a regular basis to see what is also somewhat problematically called the Lord Elgin yeah. Marbles. Like, that in and of itself is ridiculous. Yeah. He didn't make them. <laughs> and he also didn't, quote unquote, find them. They were already there. Yeah. yeah. He didn't discover them. Uh, yeah. So a really problematic history and but I think it's the thing about museums that is probably why they exist and why they're so entangled and difficult is like it's all about objects and our desire as humans to 
collect things that have meaning. And we think about even just the things that we like, our own stuff. We like it and it has meaning. And then what museums do is they try and collect them and and capture some of that meaning. And it is really, I find it is a really interesting idea, but this has like happened for literally centuries that people have been trying to preserve things from the past and try to curate and capture what it meant to be human at a certain time and what objects have either practical or symbolic importance yeah no 100 percent. you're 100 percent right and his and museums have been around for in one way or another for a long time so i read that yeah in mesopotamia dating between like the third and second millennia bc they have prototype museums which were kind of like libraries palaces temples but that had rooms for what was the preservation and communication of knowledge. And, but I guess the modern museum kind of comes around, was first used to describe Lorenzo de Medici in Florence, his collection. And museum actually means a seat of muses and is used for a philosophical institution or a place of contemplation. So, huh. yeah. But the world's first museum is in ancient Egypt. No. <laughs> I mean, it's usually the answer, but it's in the UK. <laughs> I mean, I, I did set you up for failure there, and I'm sorry, because it's always the answer I always want is ancient Egypt, but it's actually in Oxford and at the university, and it's Ashmolean. I don't know. I, uh, that must be a, a dude. Oh, yeah. That's the founder. <laughs> Some and so he, dude. Some dude. So he gave his collection of unique goods to University of Oxford in 1677, and then it was open to the public in 1683, and it's just artifacts, specimens, curiosities that fascinated people during those times. Mm. And then in Germany, they actually had something similar going at the same time, but they called it Wunderkarmen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's uh, pronunciation. Yeah. And which is just translated to an eccentric cabinet of curiosity. And it was either literally a cabinet or a room that housed strange and curious objects. And people would come in, like pay to come and visit them. We obviously hit the Enlightenment in Europe and the social outlook began to change and a demand to open museums to a wider audience emerged. So according to, you know, these Greek ideals, these classic ideals that were now becoming really popular in the Enlightenment, they believed that the institution of the museum was a model of moral virtue, which was capable of building a new society. So everyone should be have the opportunity to learn and have it as a public resource and convey a sense of national belonging. So that's when you start to see a lot of the major museums start to come around. You know, and then that like in the 19th century, you see all the capital cities in Europe have, you know, chain repurposed palaces or started to make completely new buildings to house all of their treasures. 
And they even, like, if you think of a traditional museum, even the architecture is an ode to the ideals of the Enlightenment and these, um, their, like, obsession with classical architecture. So you have, like, Roman pilasters, you know, those traditional classic columns and classical pediments. And yeah, it's, uh, even the architecture was from the same time. As you might expect, there are many very bizarre things stored in museums. And one of my favorite things is a curator challenge that they started. Basically, a UK museum challenged curators across the world to share their creepiest objects. And it got real weird. (laughs) Yeah, so it was a Yorkshire museum that basically started this hashtag curator battle and creepiest object. Amazing. (laughs) And so they started off the challenge with a third or fourth century bun of hair from a Roman lady. It still has its bun pins in place, which is like, is very weird. Like it kind of just looks like a bird's nest at this point. Then like there is a troubling taxidermy sidebar to this. So the Natural Museum, uh, his Sciences Museum had this like what they're calling a taxidermy. It's supposed to be a taxidermy mermaid. Yeah. It okay. is Moving genuinely on. <laughs> terrifying looking. <laughs> and um, definitely the plague masks are pretty creepy and weird. And I feel like they would win because they're very topical. You know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Then there's this, like, creepy bear drinking. Like, it's a very poorly taxidermied bear. The Tower of London has a executioner's mask that looks genuinely terrifying as well because it has, like, an iron smiling muzzle. And that's it was designed for public humiliation. And then, obviously, all of the creepy dolls are just, like, the stuff of nightmares. (laughs) So... As you were saying, there are so many things that museums have in their collection but are not displayed. And so I think that this challenge really brought out the weirdest and creepiest things that are hidden in um, like different museums around the world. But one of the other things, and I remember reading about trying to study the brain of Einstein. And so you can actually mm. go to a museum and see part of Einstein's brain on display, which is like weird also in a different way. I find like there's such, so you talked a lot about sculpture and art and I keep bringing up weird human body parts. And I think that that's a really bizarre thing where there's a museum that has like Elvis's toenail and there's like all of these, like there's a museum in Northern, I think it's either in Northern England or Scotland that has I think it's Scotland that has a book that's bound out of human skin leather from like this notorious criminal. It's disgusting. It was a just another sidebar. I feel like that type, those are not the type of museums that I traditionally think about. I think more about art galleries and these like big institutions. And then you get really, really weird museums that house things medical things which i just want to avoid to be honest this is like an undeniable segue into the museum that is literally horrifying there is a picture that i will show you later and it is the avanos hair museum in turkey and it's in the 
in the Cappadocian area of Turkey, which is super stunningly beautiful. And it has like all of this pottery and ceramics and tons of history. But there is this hair museum that displays locks of hair from female visitors. And they say it's from a sweet story that a local potter was bidding farewell to a friend and asked for something to remember her by. So she cut off a lock of her hair and he put it up and told the story. And then other women started leaving pieces of their hair as well. And so now they think that it has 16,000 samples and it's in the Guinness Book of Records for like the most hair. And there's a place in the museum that has this curved like archway that you can walk through and it's just all of these like bits of hair hanging down it's genuinely gross and you also are apparently once or twice a year they will choose a winning lock of hair they'll send you a message and they'll invite you to stay at their guest house but I just feel like there's so many creepy things that I don't know if I want to stay there. <laughs> yeah, that's not, I'm probably going to pass on that, to be honest. Just really quickly, list the largest and most visited museums in the world, just so mm-hmm. our fans know. So we have the Louvre in Paris, the Met in New York City, the National Museum of China in Beijing, the Smithsonian Institutions in Washington, D.C., the British Museum and National Gallery in London, and the Vatican Museums in Vatican City. But what do you think is always rated the best museum in the world? The Louvre? You have to guess. The Louvre? Question mark. No. The Musée d'Orsay in Paris. Interesting. Because people love Impressionist art. They just they love it. Yeah. But that's because you can just like, oh, uh, this art makes me feel rage mixed with sorrow. I mean, no one's going to judge you if that's how you <laughs> interpret that. But I don't know if like water lilies really give me that rage feeling, but... Everyone, art is in the eye of the beholder. Exactly, which is why I do love art museums. But I thought you might be able to tell me some of your top tips for not looking like a total dummy at a museum. I feel like this is not a question for me. This is a question for Andrew (laughs) because that man is so ridiculous in every museum we go into. And so I've taught him like some quick facts on how to identify art. So, of course, he walks around and he's like, oh, you got your mayonnaise and your mayonnaise. Uh, (laughs) But he recently wrote them down. Oh, is there fruit on a table? That's a Cezanne. Is there a weird neck? That's a Modigliani. He's like, it's a bunch of dots. It's a Surratt. (laughs) You have some Titian women? It's a Gauguin. Some sunflowers in a field? That's a Van Gogh. Some melting clocks? That's a Dolly. I'm a wicked art snob. (laughs) That's literally direct quote from Andrew Sparks. Yeah, he thinks he's like so good at this now. So, Mm. um, my top that those are some good top tips. Yeah, for art museums at the least, and just like your chubby baby versus like cute baby versus ugly baby distinctions between art eras. Yeah, and and another one would be. Just read the plaques. They will tell you so much information. And you can be like, oh, guess what? I saw this piece of art or like this artifact. And this is what it said. And then you know things. That's how learning works. (laughs) Such good top tips. But 
I find it really odd, and I don't know where this comes from. Why are museums so quiet? They're like mausoleum churches. Well, I think why? I think they're really large, so you have to think about that too. So like the sheer volume, and their ceilings are always really high. I mean, a lot of museums repurpose. Uh, like the Louvre is an old palace, so it's like it wasn't built for a museum. Although, you know, a lot of museums are famous in their own right because of their architecture. Like you think mm-hmm. of the Guggenheim by Frank Gehry, famous Canadian, you know, like the Pyramid at the Louvre by I.M. Pei, those kind of things. But I, I don't know. I feel like you kind of... It is, if you think of the original word as a place of contemplation, like maybe people just kind of treat it li- like a library where they don't chat a lot. I mean, I don't really know. Yeah. I mean, I, f- I think it's fine to like talk in the museum, but. Mm-hmm. I think that it is a bit, it's um, almost a misperception that you have to be quiet in a museum. Yeah. I think that there is an element of respect because sometimes you're walking around like invaluable cultural artifacts and just horsing around, as my mom would say, is not ideal in those situations. But at the same time, I think that there's something to be said about, as I said, some of my favorite museums are the ones that have these interactive elements that you're safely able to experience and use other senses or that bring in other elements. I remember at the National Gallery in Ottawa, the Canadian Gallery, um, they had this installation that was um, each member of a choir was recorded separately and they had speakers set up so that you could walk through sound and you could hear different voices at different spaces in the room and things like that that make it immersive and interactive. And I think that's super cool. Or when we went to the the <laughs> Gomley exhibit, um, oh, oh Anthony Gomley in the, yeah. the uh, sculptor, yeah, and you can actually like walk between and underneath some of the sculptures, and I think that was really really cool because you could actually interact in some way with the art without actually causing it damage. So I think that's pretty cool when there's interactive elements. Yeah, no, I think that's really cool. I and I, I mean, I think every museum takes a risk that those artifacts are going to be could be possibly be ruined but i do think that that's some of the best ways to learn is always to have like the kids sections of museums are always the best sections it's just it's one of the yeah one of the cool things that i saw when i was um in italy i was at i must have been in florence because i was at the birth of venus painting by botticelli so that must be somewhere in Florence. It's, it's in Florence. You're correct. It's in the <laughs> Correct. Yeah. And they actually now have, beside the actual picture, they have a Braille version. So they have a version of the painting that people that have vision visual impairments can actually feel so they can feel the painting. And they oh, have that set I to the side. That. Which I was just like, I love, I love it when people creatively make art more accessible in different ways whether it's in the kids section where there's ways to explore different types of painting to like having um like audio tours and and tools for the visually impaired to enjoy art i think that's so cool yeah that is really really cool 
Um, but you know that my fascination for museums is mostly for the strangest ones. So mm-hmm. you gave me the list of the most famous museums in the world. I'm going to list some of the weirdest museums in the world. Go. And you can tell me which ones you want to go to. Okay. Number one, a twine ball museum. No. This is in Minnesota. It's the largest twine ball is housed here, and it uh, attracts people every year to host Twine Ball Day. Yeah, and I probably wouldn't go to that one. (laughs) Uh, There's one near us in Kent in the UK. It's a dog collar museum. I mean, a little weird, but I like dogs. Yeah. Well, it's at Leeds Castle, so I think we should go there on one of our bike trips. Yeah. And it has 130 historical dog collars, including one that belonged to a mastiff in the 15th century. Oh, cool. I wonder what that looks like. I mean, we'd have to go and see. We'll we'll have to go and see. One that I will absolutely not go to is the Cockroach Museum. No, I'm not going. No. uh, Already passed. But it's... Even weirder because it's not only just like what are the unusual types of cockroaches you could have. It actually does have live cockroaches and it also has like cockroaches that have been dressed up like celebrities. So there's a liberoche and a house coat with a miniature piano and like there's like all of these like Elvis and Britney Spears and Santa Claus roaches, which I'm just like, okay. There's a line at a certain point where I'm just not into it. (laughs) Yeah. And one that I find really kind of sweet and I would definitely go see is in Croatia. And it's the Museum of Broken Relationships. Oh, yeah. I would totally see that. I quite love this. It's dedicated to failed love relationships. And you include, you leave behind personal objects that have been left by former lovers with a brief description. And so the one of the examples is there's a bottle of wine and the plaque beside it says bottle of wine, 1989 to 2010, London, England. We've been together in secret for years. The bottle of wine was drank when we both left our spouses. We never did. Oh, this bottle of wine was to be drank when we both left our spouses. We never did. And over the years, our relationship came to a quiet end. I asked for the wine back. He reluctantly gave it with bits of my heart he still held. Oh, oh, <laughs> come on. Yeah. So it's it's quite, I think it's quite a cool one. There is a virtual um, component to this museum and you can upload Uh, images and documents as well one that i am going to put on our list even though we will regret this decision so much one of the trips i want us to do this summer is to cycle around the isle of Wight, which is in the south coast of england and they have the national poo museum (laughs) i would go to that i make so many poo jokes a (laughs) poozium and they guarantee that you're not going to feel down in the dumps. <laughs> and they talk about educating people about the magic and secrets that live in poo. I mean, probably. I bet you like a sewage museum would be so interesting. So actually, there is another museum that I really want to go to, but it's been under renovation. But the Paris Sewer Museum mm-hmm. is supposed to be so cool because in Paris, there's a n- network of 
of tunnels under the city. So like you've probably heard of the catacombs. We've both been to the catacombs, but there's like many different layers of tunnels, which all had different functions in Paris. And part of it is these underground sewer tunnels. And also another cool museum that we can now book tickets to, so I really want to, is the Postal Museum in oh, London. Oh, yeah, I really... When you get the, the mail train. So they used to have this ex- secret passage of tunnels for the mail to be delivered underground in London. And with your ticket to that museum, you get to ride on this mail train. And they are accepting bookings now. So I looked it up. So we should pick a time. Yeah, we should, go to, mail we should go to that. Um, one of the other ones that I want to go to in the UK is in Northumberland and it's the Alnwick Poison Garden. Oh, that sounds cool. It is amazing. It is this garden that's filled with stunning trees and flowers. That they're all poisonous? A hundred of the world's most lethal plants. Oh my God, that's so cool. Isn't it? So some tourists have actually fainted or fallen ill because they've like smelled something or touched it. And that would so, be you. I, well, obviously. <laughs> but yeah, there's a sign at the front of the garden like these plants can kill with skull and crossbones. But I just think it's so cool because it's these beautiful, idyllic plants in this stunning old area and uh you just can die from stopping and smelling those flowers and then one other one and this is a special shout out to mrs h and in the vein that there's a lid for every pot and there's a museum for every possible person there's a museum of cement (laughs) concrete or cement cement oh weird well, that's what it's called. It's a Spanish word, so maybe I'm interpreting it incorrectly, but it's in San Sebastian in Spain. Yeah, I so, bet you they would really like that. <laughs> I don't know that it would get the same number of visitors as like the Louvre or I mean, Musée d'Orsay, but you know, if you're into your cement, yeah, that's the place to go. So those are those are kind of the top tips of some museums that I will and will not visit. I like it. So you touched on museums in the pandemic and the really cool Twitter wars, I'd call, <laughs> of who who had the best who had the best weirdest artifact. And um, I do think it is something to touch on because obviously museums have struggled a lot in the pandemic, and there's been like a lot of debate of do they start selling their offerings so I did look up some museums who've sold uh, some of their pieces to private collections in the pandemic to make money and I was like oh I I I don't know a lot of people are like it's understandable but also it's understandable but I feel like it goes against everything that a museum stands for that we talked about probably the most famous thing I saw that was stolen um, or not stolen. <laughs> stolen by lots of giving lots of money to the museum. Yeah, probably by Jeff Bezos. <laughs> no, <laughs> but was uh, a Jackson Pollock. So oh. they sold they sold that for twelve million, which is not an insignificant sum. No, um, but, but can also- you imagine like how much rent? some of these museums must pay or the the tax property property. tax yeah oh my goodness 
So I understand needing 12 million just to get through a year. And there's some museums who've continued to pay their staff throughout the entire pandemic, which is Mm. obviously lovely and a nice person thing to do. So, you know, they've definitely operated at a loss. But there's also this conversation about how a lot of museums have now been like forced to like jump into the future quite quickly and offer virtual tours of the museum. For example, like the VNA in London had Lewis Carroll Alice in Wonderland a summer show for like last year, 2020, and they put it all online virtual and they even created like a VR game based on Wonderland where people could follow their own white rabbit and solve the caterpillars riddles and visit the Queen of Hearts garden and like so much more. And then people are like, well, aren't museums like aren't you expected to see the originals? And then so I looked into this and you're like, Mm. all Victorian museums didn't display the like real antiquities. They displayed copies of everything they owned so really yeah and they so they the value of these copies of these like plaster casts were worth so much money and especially like in north america and the u.s and canada they museums didn't have like any real antiquities and so they had to have plastered casts and so like this british art critic Jonathan Jones is like, this is not a new age of like fakery or forgery. This is like just a a new version of an era of knowledge. And I was like, that's actually a really good point. I have a question for you. I'm sure that this, (laughs) you almost certainly don't know the answer, but you might. But are there any like really famous examples of like when things were passed off as real in museums and or museums purchasing fakes for like I'm sure this happens all the time like I feel like this is a a thing (laughs) oh Jennifer art forgery is like my jam I love it so I don't really know about like antique stuff because I I do I wonder if that's harder to sell but but then I was like oh there's so many good examples so like a watch made you look on Netflix. It's an art forgery documentary about a a gallery in New York City that is now closed down from the scandal, and they had so like they tricked so many people and had so many fakes. But John Matt M Y A T T, I don't know. He is known as committing the great the biggest art fraud of the 20th century and like he faked van gogh's and he uh tricked both like sotheby's and christie's and sold his paint his fakes through them and like out of like hundreds of thousands of pounds and like was convicted and went to jail but like there's so many there's got to be so many fakes still in circulation. But is there, do you feel like there's any sort of like weird moral line here? Like, is there something sacred about seeing the actual object compared to like some of these really good forgeries that have f- tricked experts and curators? Like, is there something like, should we feel 
duped as a consumer when we go to see say we went to see the rosetta stone and it was a fake rosetta stone do you feel like that takes away from from the experience of museums like i don't think it takes away when you know it's a fake like if you're still learning from it like if i go if someone is really into art but they you know can't afford afford to fly to paris and go to the louvre the musee d'orsay yeah, looking online and seeing those images or seeing a like reproduction in, you know, wherever they live, that's fine. But I think you cross a lie when a line when you're when it's a lie. Like, I guess that's the question though, because if so, in the, optimally, which probably happens a lot, a museum would put on the sign like this is a reproduction of the actual artifact. Yeah, and that's completely fine. Everyone knows this, but. What if you went to a museum and you thought you saw the real thing and it wasn't the real thing and it wasn't said that it wasn't the real thing? Well, then then you're lying. And I, I think a lot of books, like, say, the Bible <laughs> and other... I think all cultures would say that lying is not good. Yeah. Hilariously, I was just looking this up because I wanted to see other examples of artifact forgery that is an art forgery which is like Mm. obviously more more popular um but speaking of the bible there were these curators that were uh faked by uh these donated dead sea scroll fragments yeah that's actually a super famous example the dead sea scrolls he the guy who donated them because you get a tax credit for the amount that you of an artifact. So they're mm. like usually a fragment sells for a million or so. So you get like a tax write off. But the guy that donated them was the president of Hobby Lobby. So I feel like he's just like sitting in his basement with all of the craft supplies in the world, just making up Dead Sea Scroll forgeries, which I find so funny. And this it was the Museum of the Bible, which is in D.C. And they said that over half of the artifacts in the museum are fakes. Oh, one of the other things that I was just going to say, because I was then looking up in the category of weird museums, there is a museum of art fakes, which is so cool. It's Flauscher Museum Mm. in Vienna. And it has no original work, but it has fake Rembrandts and Matisse's and they're all forgeries. And so they're kind of like celebrating these forgeries, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I that's I'm into that. I mean, I what I would say is obviously a lie is I think morally across all cultures, no one's going to argue lying is good. But then when you start when it goes back into purchasing fake artifacts, I mean, then you're committing a legitimate crime. Like that is fraud. Yeah. You're frauding people of their money or people or institutions, and that's when it's it becomes a criminal act. And that's a big no-no. Yeah, that did wander a little bit away from like the the idea of virtual museums. But I kind of think that this idea of having to shift to an online world is great in some ways because, as you were saying, it makes it more accessible. Like people are able to enjoy and learn from all over the world, all different cultures, all different museums. 
And it kind of reminds me of the transition that I feel libraries were forced to make in the last 20 years, where people are spending less time in physical libraries, but recognizing that libraries still have a really important role in terms of uh, making education accessible, making knowledge accessible, and as a community space. And I feel like museums have a different role, but they're a repository of such cultural and historic knowledge and there's like highly skilled individuals in that area but it's like how can we make it relevant to the like modern lifestyle where we don't really most people don't go to museums very frequently but yeah they're still they're still goods still not goods. all of us are super museum nerds that's weird because learning is fun, guys. Learning is so fun. Learning is fun. <laughs> also, not everyone is the keener on the guided tours that just like has to be like, right at the front asking all the questions. Yeah. God, I love a good walking tour. Oh, just my goodness. the best. Yeah. We need to do an entire episode on walking tours because really terrific. Really terrific. <laughs> so... Some famous things from May 18th. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just going to do things because there's actually some big stuff. So okay. the first crusade happened in 1096. Not great. You know, not everyone. But maybe to... there's artifacts in museums from that. Possible. Possible. <laughs> um, the Seven Years War began when also Great Britain great. declared war on France. But I do appreciate the name because then you just know a lot about it just from the name you know what year did it start in uh 1756 okay so you know what year it ended napoleon bonaparte is proclaimed to be the emperor of france and lastly in 1980 the students of Gwangju in south korea kind of close where karen and i lived um, oh. had very famous demonstrations in which they, uh, the dictator killed a lot of Korean students and forced uh, South Korea to become a democracy. So, pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. In terms of other things to celebrate, May 18th doesn't have a lot because we're really busy. There's a lot of museums to celebrate, so we mm, don't have a lot true. of other things. There, it is World AIDS Vaccine Day, which is actually really exciting because all of the work in the uh, COVID vaccine over the past year might have furthered the search for the AIDS vaccine in a way that we haven't seen and it accelerated that research. So it's a really great day to remember the decades of work that's been going into the search for an AIDS vaccine. So that's cool. fantastic. Yeah, that's really good. Okay, okay bye, Jen. Bye. See you later. These are the days, my friends, the RSN descends. Let's sing and dance and make a bunch of noise. So let the fun ensue and learn a thing or two. These are the days.